welcome to this episode of the Fuel for Thought podcast, the show that asks what's new and renewable in the world of refineries. I'm Sylvain, Senior Business Strategy Manager at Topsu. And I'm Michele, Senior Business Development Manager at Topsu. And we're here to give you a clear view of renewables. From today's legislation and market trends to tomorrow's technologies and processing. So Michele, how about we get started? Okay, let's roll. In today's episode of the Fuel for Thought podcast, Sylvain catches up with Lasse Rosendahl, who's professor in the Department of Energy Technology at Aalborg University. Lasse started his academic career in mechanical engineering looking into combustion and heat transfer, but he soon became interested in the potential of biomass for producing unspec fuel for transportation. He now leads a team of 10 to 15 people at Aalborg University, experimenting with hydrothermal liquefaction to convert organic material into what he calls an oil-like substance. So, Sylvain asked Lasse about the hydrothermal liquefaction process. Well, the process is about uh, converting um, organic material to um, to, to an, an oil-like substance, uh, which is what we call the biocrude. Um, mm-hmm. And um, the way it works is, is by... Um, Utilizing the properties of water at uh, around water, the critical point of water, so temperature in the vicinity of, of 373 uh, centigrade and, and pressures mm-hmm. around 220 bar. And the thing yes. with, with water in, at those conditions is it, it water changes properties uh, to a degree that actually facilitates um, uh, the uh, depolymerization of, of biomasses. Um, um, into, into um, uh, reaction fragments that then um, still in this aqueous environment uh, recombine uh, and depending on how you tweak the process, recombine into uh, these oil type uh, compounds um, or uh, into uh, more charry uh, products. And, and then there is a gas, uh, a gas phase and, and, and some soluble organics. So these are really the outputs of of the HTL, okay. and of course the interest, at least when we talk about this as a fuel-producing technology, uh, is on maximizing uh, the yield and quality of of the biocrude phase, the water insoluble product. You talk about biomass, but could plastic be used, or algae, or any? What have been done? What have you worked on? Well, um, we've mostly worked on lignocellulosics. <clears throat> So wood, uh, straw, um, uh, different types of grasses like miscanthus and, and things like that, um, where obviously the challenge is, is the lignin uh, mm-hmm. component. Um, uh, HCL works really well uh, on, uh, on this type of feedstocks. Um, recently, we've uh, moved into uh, what we call uh, uh, urban wastes, so mm-hmm. uh, sewage sludge and uh, organic fraction of uh, of municipal solid waste, this kind of material. Algae, uh, as you mentioned, uh, microalgae in particular, have been uh, uh, considered by many uh, research groups around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, it, it, it's, it, HTL is a feedstock agnostic process. It doesn't really, uh, you know, it, it'll convert any organic um, uh, feedstock you, you provide. Obviously, um, 
you have to understand the feedstock in order to get the most out of the HTL. But in principle, uh, just like uh, nature's own um, conversion of fossil uh, material, organic material into uh, crude oil and coal and natural gas, um, we can pretty much work with with any uh, any feedstock. Uh, our listeners might not know much about uh, hydrothermal liquefaction yet, but they will know more at the end of this podcast. But they might have heard about pyrolysis, for example, or gasification and uh, fissure traps. So compared to these two processes, when would one use hydrothermal liquefaction, for example? Well, um, the short answer is always. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, more, the more complete answer is... Um, it, it really depends. Uh, I mean, HTL is a, it's a wet process. Mm -hmm. So if you have, uh, for example, a wet feedstock, um, it makes sense uh, not to need, not to have to dry and, and prepare. Mm -hmm. um, biomass resources are also, um, so aggregation is an issue. How much biomass do you have available on any given site? Yeah. Um, which is also consideration when you have to select, uh, you know, the, the technology that you think will be suitable for a given feedstock and a given location. So it's, I mean, it, it's, it's really quite complicated to say when you will do one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, there are lots of factors that, that play in, but, but essentially you could use you can use uh, HTL on, on any of the feedstocks, um, pretty much also any of the scales that you would use uh, the, the other two technologies for. Can you explain us briefly the main technical challenges? Of course, there are challenges to this. And, and like you say, uh, one of them, is, so what we're doing is, is operating under, uh, you know, relatively high temperatures, uh, mm -hmm. but definitely high pressures. So, um, you know, you have to make sure that... Uh, your 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 containment your your actual equipment uh, is 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 uh, capable corrosion uh, can be an issue um it's mostly uh, an issue if you if you run in in uh, acidic uh, environments so if your process operates in acidic environments so we try not to do that how do you do that well, I mean, the simple way is to add a, an alkaline, uh, what we call an alkaline catalyst uh, to the feed to make sure that you, you, uh, you know, you, you're operating in, in, in high pH uh, for the duration of the, of the process. Okay, I see. Yeah. Um, so, so, but obviously you are uh, working in continuous mode um, uh, at, at these conditions. And so, uh, as you also mentioned, this, this whole getting your feedstock into this uh, this process is is can be a, a challenge, and again, you know, you have to make a slurry, um, something that can be pumped. Mm -hmm. um, for for lignocellulosics, it's uh, it's quite challenging. You have to understand uh, the way your your uh, organic material, the the rheology of it, mm -hmm. the way you actually make it into a paste, and the way you make sure that as you pressurize that paste, you don't just you know, squeeze out uh, the water and, and end up with a water and a, and a dry mm -hmm. feed because then you know you've 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 had it. So there is a there is a um, there is a quite a bit of knowledge that goes into designing mm -hmm. these um, these slurries to get to sufficiently uh, high mm -hmm. concentrations of organic material for this to be uh, you know 
Yes, and you have quite some hands-on experience because you have yourself a demo unit at Oldborg University. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yes, we have a, a, a medium-sized uh, unit. It's it's uh, it's rated to something like 25, 30 kilos per hour wow. of, of slurry. So, uh, and 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 in that unit, we have actually been processing lignocellulose uh, for for the last. Uh, well, it was uh, commissioned in 2013. Okay. Uh, so it's it's actually seen quite uh, quite some uh, some feedstock since then. And recently, we we started, like I said early on, we started looking into um, sludge. Yeah. So uh, the latest uh, uh, work we've done on the on the unit has been uh, processing sludge. You mentioned uh, alkaline salts to counter corrosion issues. Do can you put any? Mm-hmm. I'm a, have a catalyst background, so I will ask: Can you put any catalyst in this? Uh, does it help if you want to put catalysts in your process? Well, I, I think that's a little bit of an open question. I mean, there, there has been um, there has been uh, HTL uh, processes uh, that involved um, a heterogeneous mm-hmm. catalyst um, as as part of the um, as part of the process. I think, uh, and and there is still work going on on introducing different types of catalysts directly into the uh, into the HTL um, environment. I think it, this is very much on on the you know, on, on sort of exploratory uh, research stage. Uh, and I, I think also those technologies that are now uh, emerging, or those, let, let me say, lo- those technology implementations that are now emerging are the ones that operate in, in a homogeneous um, right. mode uh, without a, 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 a heterogeneous catalyst. Let's move a bit more to a technical side now. We mentioned different feedstocks, but I guess the quality of the feedstocks will affect the quality of the biocrude. So do you have any example of, if I go from lignocellulose to plastic waste, what would be the impact on the biocrude quality? Um, well, depending a little bit on, your, on, the, on the actual structure of the plastic waste, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, for us, uh, plastic is definitely not an unattractive feedstock. Mm-hmm. Because it it you know it, it does actually contain, um, of course, in a poly, in a in a polymerized form, um, a lot of those components that we uh, that we find in 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 the biocrude, um, and 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 what we've seen is you know so we can actually I mean plastic converts well, uh, most plastics convert well under HCL conditions, so it's it's certainly something to you know, there are lots of other problems. Oh no, not problems, the wrong word. There are the challenges when it comes to yeah. plastics um, um, that are different from the ones that you would find in, in, um, in biomass. But, but one of the nice things is that, you know, if you're looking into waste, for example, and you say, well, you know, uh, most processes uh, want only the organic fraction and, and it, it becomes actually quite a challenge to, to be able to separate out, for example, plastics from, you know, uh, waste bags and things like that. In, in HTL, that would not be a problem at all. It would just uh, become part of the, the feed. Very good. So plastic contamination is not such an issue. Interesting. Uh, what would be the properties of a typical biocrude from biomass, for example, with oxygen content, nitrogen? Well, it depends on the biomass, really. I mean, the most, uh, the most influential uh, factor on the biocrude is really uh, the source. 
you know, uh, so so where it came from, um, and so lignocellulosic biocrude is is quite different from, uh, let's say, algal uh, biocrude or biocrude from uh, sludge. And even if you look at sludge, uh, biocrude biocrude from primary sludge will most probably be different from biocrude from secondary sludge. Can you elaborate a bit on I don't know the difference between primary and secondary sludge. Could you elaborate a bit? Well, primary sludge is is the first sludge that comes into mm-hmm. a wastewater treatment plant. So that's uh, before any uh, any stabilization has taken place. So that's like the you know, you could say the the the, the raw sludge. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondary sludge has been um uh, aerobically uh, stabilized and and so so which is also a way to to increase dry matter contents and and things like that. But but sludge is sludge is is quite a heterogeneous feedstock. Um, so, you know, like there are these differences in in the location in the wastewater treatment plant from which you get the sludge. But there are also big differences uh, on a geographical scale. You know, it it really also depends. You know, is it mostly household wastewater? Is it also industrial wastewater? Is it in northern Europe? Is it in sou- southern Europe? Is it in, you know, yes. in the Americas or or Asia? Yeah. So lots of factors will influence um, the the composition of the sludge. If we look at the carbon balances, so let's say I have a I don't know hundred ton of carbon coming in, a hundred kilo of carbon. How much would end in the biocrude mm-hmm. and how much in the gas form or char, for example? Uh, well, again, that that depends really on how you uh, implement your um, how you do your uh, HTL implementation. So, but what would be the best yields you you got, for example, that are reported in the literature? Well, I mean, uh, carbon yields uh, pushing, uh, you know, sort of in in the seventies is is uh, is quite okay, good. Okay, so seventy percent ending up as biocrude. Okay. Some, yeah, right. And then you have um, you have also uh, uh, in in the um, so there is the, the biocrude. There is uh, you you may have a water phase, okay. uh, and you you have a gas phase, which is then mostly uh, CO two. Yeah, uh, and you have also um, uh, maybe a, ch- a char, right? Okay, and 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 so of course uh, when you operate the. Uh, the HTL. Uh, I mean, if 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 you're trying to maximize your fuel production capacity, you want to minimize uh, uh, loss of carbon to char, uh, and you also want to make sure that you don't uh, the the stream that goes off to uh, to the aqueous fraction mm-hmm. uh, in, into the water phase as as soluble organics. You want to uh, also either close that loop by bringing it back into the process, or have some mechanism where you then utilize uh, whatever energetic or organic compounds you might have in the water phase. And uh, what can be done with a char, for example, or with a gas that you form in this process? Well, um, I mean, like I said, so we tried to avoid the, making the char. Um, mm-hmm. And, and for, for, for lignocellulose, it, it's, it, we'd normally run with very low um, carbon loss to, to the char. Um, but I mean, of course, there's a lot of uh, discussion at the moment on, on, on biochar yes. and hydrochar. Um, and the um, the option of using this as a as soil amendment and, and carbon uh, as a carbon sequestration mechanism, and and the trouble, well, yeah, I mean, yes, it is, but I mean, it, it's sort of like you know you you're faced with this um, uh, decision, you know. So what is it that you want to exactly. to optimize for? Is it char production, um, or is it you know, going all in to to, to maximize yes. what goes into the fuel. Yeah, and, and I, our strategy has definitely been the, the latter, that, that we try to avoid the char. 
So once, let's say we make a nice biocrude with a biomass. And then, so what has a, um, how do you upgrade this into transport fuels? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> So, so the direct route uh, would be um, would be a hydro treatment if if we are targeting uh, road transport fuels. Um, so, uh, you know, essentially like uh, what would be done uh, in a normal refinery. So, uh, um, a catalytic hydro treatment. Obviously, the difference is that here we have something that contains quite a, a bit of oxygen. I think you asked that earlier on. I never answered. So, which percentage? In my head, I'm thinking 10, 10 to 20 percent. Yeah, 10, 10 is yeah, exactly. That's sort of the ballpark that we are at. And obviously, the lower oxygen contents out of the HTL, uh, the better it is. But I guess you have a lower biocrude yield too. Is that correct? Yeah, but I mean, yeah, exactly. And 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 so actually quite a lot of um, investigators have had this focus on mm -hmm. on mass yield optimizing the mass yield of of the biocrude which is actually not in my opinion the right focus to have um, because like you say I mean the, the less oxygen you have in your biocrude the lower your mass yield will be however um, you know so so the real metric for this is your is the energy recovery into the uh, into yes. the biocrude and so that is the one that we try to maximize okay. Um, you know, and, and so even if you have a lower mass yield, uh, you know, you, you will have a better, or at least hopefully you'll have a better um, yes. uh, energy recovery. When you then have your, your bio crude and you want to, to turn it into transport fuel, your first task is really to remove the heteroatoms, uh, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur. Sulfur is typically uh, the lowest, oxygen is the highest, and nitrogen depends on the feedstock. So if you do lignocellulose, there's no nitrogen, of course. I remember seeing data with, uh, from algae is reaching a few percent of nitrogen, five, six. And mm -hmm. uh, people use, working with fossil fuels, they are used to 100 yeah, ppm. Yeah. So this is quite a different feedstock. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, exactly. And, and, and so this is what we see as soon as we go to um, feedstocks that, that are protein uh, containing, we will also have nitrogen in the uh, in the bio crude. So anywhere from, you know, one two percent mm -hmm. maybe on sludge or three up to five six yes. seven eight uh, from from algae. Good for the catalyst. Oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm just yeah. I'm just curious about. We talk about high oxygen content, and some people might wonder about corrosion. So would you have, for example, uh, an acid number? Typical value for a biocrude. Yeah, I mean, again, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And acid numbers are, are are high. I mean, in the tens, you know. So, so it, it they're definitely much much higher than than any uh, any fossil crude, and of course associated with the oxygen content. So, so, so tan tan. I mean, having when you do the deoxygenation step in the upgrading, you know, your your tan reduces down to normal numbers again. Yeah, very low values. Yes, yes, but it's yeah. a standard problem for renewable feedstock. You also see it for yeah animal fats or use. Of course, fats. exactly. Of course. Yeah. The other, the other topic I was I had in mind was contaminants: phosphorus, silicon, nitrogen, or chlorine. If you have plastic, it's also I guess it's also an issue for biocrudes. Well, it, it can be. Yes, it can be. Um, I mean, not, well, not so much for the biocrude, I think, but for the actual processing for the HTL stage. I mean, obviously, if you have a again feedstock uh, containing chlorine, you, you're going to have to deal with it. You know, you have to get figure out a way to get it out, and even some biomass is like straw and and that type of of uh, feedstock which has a, a relatively high chlorine content, you, you, you have to think about it. 
Are there ways to pretreat the biomass before entering the hydrothermal liquefaction process? Can you remove, can you decrease this level of contaminants? Yes, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, you can. Uh, but again, you know, it, it comes at a cost. And so in, in, in one of our projects, we are looking at um, uh, demineralizing and de, uh, what, deprotonizing, maybe that's not the right word, but removing the proteins already from the feed in order to bring down the nitrogen content and also operate with a lot less uh, uh, inorganics in, 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 in the HTL process. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's kind of, but it's, it's, it's a give and take, you know, I mean, as you take out, uh, it, it's really hard to demineralize without losing some carbon. And it, it, it's also, um, I mean, if you, if you, if you take out the protein, you obviously you, you reduce the, um, the organic, uh, material going into the HTL process. So, but I mean, you know, that might be, a a, a business case for you. Uh, you know, if, you, if, if the protein has a higher value than what you can do on the fuel, I mean, you know, of course, you can have to consider that. Lasse, I'd like to discuss now about uh, demo units and commercialization. So are there any demo units out there? Well, uh, not, not really uh, yet, but uh, mm-hmm. happily uh, they're on the way. Um, so by, by demo unit, um, let's say, you know, there are units that are mm-hmm. sort of at relevant, uh, industrial scale and, and those are, are, I mean, those are, are not, not here yet. Our unit, which is, um, let's say 30 kilos per hour is, is one, there are a few continuous plants of this scale around the world in, in the U S, uh, here in Denmark, um, uh, in Australia. Um, so, so there are a few of these uh, units, that are, but one of the big things, of course, is making that step to continuous processing from normal lab type stuff where you, you know, you have an autoclave or something like that. But I mean, you know, we're all in, in, in this range of, you know, let's say uh, from a few kilograms per hour up to maybe a few tens of, let's say, 50 kilos per hour. Um, and so the, the step into, you know, the next decade up, uh, is, is, uh, is still to come. Yes, it's what I wanted to discuss now with you. So can you detail these projects and you can also name the companies working on it? No problems. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I mean, th- there is, uh, there are, let's say, uh, and, and, and <laughs> if I forget some, it's not to be rude, but I, let me say there are like three, uh, <laughs> three mm-hmm. major, uh, commercialization efforts uh, one uh, is the one that i i'm yes. most familiar with of course that's the one by steeper energy uh, who are uh, building mm-hmm. uh, a demonstration scale plant in in norway and which size are we target do you know the do you have in mind the target for the size well i mean yeah, yeah i mean we're in uh, we're in uh, some tens of barrels of bio crude per day it's much bigger so, so yeah. uh, ex- exactly what number it, it'll end up? Uh, yeah, but it, it exactly. I mean, you know, we, we're talking significant uh, scale up. Um, there is a PNNL uh, mm-hmm. working together with Jenny Fuel in the US, uh, having announced, and so this is building on the PNNL HTL technology. They've announced projects with uh, Metro Vancouver on uh, on sludge, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and also um, a project in uh, in California. Um, mm-hmm. And there is in Australia, there is uh, Lysella, um, who uh, have um, 
I don't know what you call it, a, a pilot scale unit uh, at their uh, home site, um, but also have who announced a project in, in Canada, as well as a project here in Europe yes. on uh, on plastic waste in the UK. So, and, and then there are, I mean, there is also in, in, in Australia, there is also um, uh, a project around uh, a refinery called Southern Oil, where the idea is also to try to, to merge uh, biocrude with uh, fossil fuel production and, and, and so quite a few, quite a few projects out there in a with much bigger scale. Yes, exactly. So I think this is a, I mean, this is a, a sort of a time of transition for the HTL community that we are coming out of. Not only are we coming out of the autoclaves um, and into the more sort of continuous uh, research plants, but we are now also making that transformation mm-hmm. uh, into larger scale. I mean, you know, as as a precursor for real commercialization. Yes, and I'm sure the yeah the whole industry is watching and waiting and crossing their fingers. Crossing our fingers, <laughs> definitely crossing our fingers. <laughs> With uh, respect to upscaling, are there any specific issues that one needs to have in mind? Of course, um, feedstock availability, um, but I mean that's like any major energy project. Um, you know, you you want to know that uh, the the location. Where you want, where you'll put your plant, has uh, sufficient feedstock for it to run at whatever uh, nameplate capacity you you put on it. So this is definitely one. Um, sc- scaling up, I mean, apart from the fact that you know you are working with with high pressures and then that challenges uh, scale up. Um, I, I think also this whole uh, um, concept of of doing this in continuous mode, so from the actual feeding. Uh, or slurry preparation feeding into the plant at the back end of the high pressure zone where you then want to separate out your bio crude and not get any of the, mm-hmm. you know, the minerals or the water or, you know, whatever else you have uh, in, into the bio crude to be able to actually put it into your, your refinery, uh, your, your, your catalytic uh, processes. Uh, that is also uh, something you, you need to, to, to be aware of as a, as a challenge. How does a business case look like? Is it, I guess you would say it's interesting, but do you have any thought about that? <laughs> well, yes. Um, I mean, there have been uh, a number of, of, uh, of techno-economic studies uh, out there by different groups um, on, on different feedstocks. And again, so, you know, ranging from, or actually a combination of techno-economics and LCA studies, mm-hmm. ranging from, you know, microalgae, uh, which has been very, very popular in, in terms of doing LCA studies through uh, sludge and, 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 and waste and, and, and into lignocellulosics. And I think uh, the overall uh, conclusion from all of this is that um, HCL compares extremely favorably to other technologies in terms of uh, final cost uh, of, uh, of fuel and also in terms of uh, potential greenhouse savings. Yes. We've also done a few uh, estimates and, and we, we sort of land at prices which are about 50% uh, above um, the cost of fossil. Okay, so it's not a factor two or three. No, so, so I mean, you know, we're, we've obviously it's more expensive, and I think you know, uh, expecting uh, uh, sustainable fuels to be more to be cheaper yes. than uh, fossil fuels, I think is 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 a, is a dream that will not come true. Um, but I mean, you know, we're we're in terms of production cost, I think 
uh, we we are relatively close okay and definitely within uh, you know within a reasonable range of of additional costs uh, for, for green uh, fuels You mentioned uh, greenhouse gas emission savings. Do you have a number in mind? Are we talking about 50%, 60%, or what is the range normally? Again, it depends on your implementation, uh, how you actually make the, you know, make the, the, the process, how you integrate all your, your mass streams. Uh, it also depends on, um, well, one of the, the big issues, of course, is the hydrogen. You know okay. where you get your hydrogen from for the upgrading. If you need external hydrogen, uh, you know, uh, chances are that it is uh, fossil hydrogen that you get. Yes. Um, you know, so that of course contributes. But if you can get green hydrogen, of course, or you have, I mean, if you're able to actually um, utilize all the hydrogen within the the biomass and and not need any external, then you're you're much better. <laughs> but we our numbers would say you know anywhere from you know, uh, at least 70% uh, compared to fossil um, to beyond 100%. Okay, really? You know, so, so again, it, it depends on your implementation. I mean, one of the side streams from HTL is, is actually CO2. So what can you do with this CO2 exactly? Well, you, I mean, you, basically you can do two things. Uh, one is, is um, sequester it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, as you would uh, from a, a normal flue gas. Uh, and then uh, y- this is how you can get your your carbon negative uh, process or you can uh, use it. I mean, it's, you know, right today, of course, there is a, you know, industrial CO2 market. You can sell it uh, on the market or as the, you know, the other extreme, you can uh, you can make uh, electrofuels okay. uh, from your CO2. I mean, you know, this is there's a lot of focus on that just now. So, I mean, from an HTL platform, you can basically play into these different scenarios and say, well, you know, if there is an interest to be carbon negative, we can uh, deliver. If there's an interest to be extremely carbon effective, we can also deliver. What would you recommend to a refiner who was uh, interested in producing biocrude? Well, I, I would uh, certainly say uh, I think that's a very good idea. Um, hmm. I would also suggest uh, the refiner to, um, to, to spend some effort making sure that the differences between the, the biocrude and the, the normal uh, fossil uh, feeds is, is well understood um, in order to make as, you know, as, as seamless an integration as, uh, as possible. And uh, just out of curiosity, can the bio crude be blended with a fossil crude? Oil? Uh, n- no, it can't. Uh, and and the reason is that it is a it is a polar. It has oxygen, uh, so there is um, it has polarity, and um, mm-hmm. so it doesn't blend. Um, I mean, you know, these are things that um, have been addressed uh, in in sort of recent uh, research uh, activities. So we have a fairly good idea what it takes. Uh, yes. To, to make uh, make it blendable with a fossil stream. Do you think that it will be, uh, if you think about in 10 years, 20 years, will we see small units to do hydrothermal equifaction or will it be big ones? Will they be located in the refineries or next to the feedstock source? In terms of the scale, I think we'll see a little bit of both. And uh, I think that depends really on the type of feedstock uh, that you work with. So, uh, I mean, essentially, the cost of the feedstock is is a critical parameter in in scale. So, if you are working on a an expensive uh, feedstock, uh, you, you need to have a larger unit to be economic. 
if you're working on other types of feedstocks um, that are either much cheaper or even, you know, people pay you to, to take them, uh, scale becomes uh, much less of a, a constraint. And, and mm -hmm. we, you know, we'll also see, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, relatively small units. I mean, of course, I don't think that we'll ever see how, you know, you should never say never, but uh, I think household units uh, are probably not so realistic, but but definitely units that, uh, you know, are, are sort of, let's say, in the 10,000 tons range per year mm -hmm. of input material uh, up to, let's say, a, a factor of 10 on that. So 100,000 tons per year and beyond. So what are the hot topics discussed in the HTL community these days, the scientific community? What are you guys talking about in conferences? Well, I mean, obviously, this uh, upscaling that is, is now happening is, is, uh, is being watched with a lot of uh, interest and, and discussed, uh, you know, um, because, I mean, this is like a, a huge, uh, it's very, very important for the community that this is actually successful. So this is something that we talk about. But this whole, um, a lot of work uh, right now in, in, in labs around the world is, is, is done in these um, batch type reactors in autoclaves. Yes. And, and one of the things that we, having now gained quite a bit of experience with the continuous processes, we begin to understand what the differences are. And the trouble, or one of the challenges has been really that people have used uh, batch uh, data as if it was continuous and done a lot of uh, LCA and, and techno-economics on that. Yes. And, and you can't just sort of make that transfer. You have to, you know, that is, that is actually also a topic that we discuss and, and even I, you know, to my opinion, should be discussing even more. Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, issue we talked about before, this co-refining and, and so how, do you, how you actually uh, utilize existing refinery infrastructure to, but with a green feedstock uh, mm -hmm. and, and make, that, um, make that entry. Um, that is a big topic, and that is an important topic um, that is, is also being discussed. Mm -hmm. Making sure that uh, you make the transition from the HTL to the upgrading, that you have actually a, a biocrude, which is upgradable, is another big topic. And, and, and again, if, if, if you're working with an autoclave type setup, you, you might not have that, um, have this as one of the, you know, the, the challenges uh, ahead, but, but it, it definitely is one of the challenges. What would be different? Is it more the hydrothermal liquefaction part or would it be the upgrading part? It'll be the upgrading part. Okay. Jet fuel, of course, is, is more complicated because the, um, well, they, they have, there is this whole certification uh, setup uh, that you have to pass. So it's a lot more stringent than to make a road transport fuel where essentially you have to, I mean, if it's diesel, you have to, you know, live up to uh, EN yes. 590 and, uh, and, and then find um, <laughs> somebody uh, with market access who will yes. sell your fuel. Um, for aviation, of course, it's, it's quite different. And if I'm not mistaken, it's not approved yet in the STMD 7566. No, no. Not approved yet no. from hydrothermal liquefaction. So, but I know there is work ongoing. So hopefully soon enough right. it would be approved. Exactly. So, so we, we, uh, we think we have a, at least we have a, a, a way to address this uh, that we think might, might be good. What about uh, bunker fuels? Is it something the community is looking at? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, I should have mentioned that together with the, with the jet fuel because it's sort of um, those two uh, are actually quite complementary when you, when you have a, a bio crude that has 
you know, a wide boiling range, there'll be quite a, a substantial fraction of that biocrude that is not uh, suitable for uh, either road transport or, or, or jet fuel as the most specific. So you'll have this heavy bit, which in many ways is, um, you know, the, the, so the, uh, the effort of bringing that fraction of the biocrude to something that could be used mm -hmm. as bunker fuel may be um, small enough that it is actually a viable uh, pathway. And so uh, the opportunity to be able to supply significant amounts of, of sustainable fuel also for this uh, transport sector are definitely, uh, are definitely there. Lasser, where do you wish we'd be in uh, 10 years with respect to hydrothermal liquefaction? Well, in 10 years, I hope that uh, there are several plants uh, around the world mm -hmm. uh, producing biocrude from a range of sustainable feedstocks um, and those biocrudes being upgraded to, uh, to transport fuels uh, so we can actually uh, make a, a significant impact on, on uh, the sustainability or lack of sustainability in the, in the heavy transport sector. So yeah, in 10 years, I, I hope that HTL has proven itself to be um, a significant contributor to making a green transition in, in the transport sector. So that was Lasse's take on producing biocrude using hydrothermal liquefaction. That was really interesting. I was not aware that so much work had gone into the handling of the biomass itself. Mm -hmm. That was actually really an eye-opener for me. Okay. This is not my expertise. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, um, the whole uh, explanation about um, how to optimize feeding it is, is very interesting because clearly it will differ from, from feedstock to feedstock. Exactly. And we're used to liquid feedstocks, yeah. working with uh, refineries and oil. So here it's handling solid. And I think, I guess it's also interesting for listeners, for refiners who are wondering how would we upgrade these feedstocks? How will it be produced? Yes. Because they're also used to liquid. So no, it was a very interesting discussion. Just one point. Uh, Lasse mentioned this yield of 70% of uh, biocrude produced from biomass, but if they contain 50% water, yeah. what do you... What do you think? I was also thinking about that uh, because typically if you have wooden biomass, 50% of it is water. <laughs> so 70% from, from 50%, that, was, that would okay. be close to magic. But I think the, the, usually you also count in dry matter base. Yeah, so that must be So why. it's the dried product. When you have dried the product, then it's 70% of that that actually comes out as an oil-like substance. Okay, let's leave the world of university and research and think about how this will be implemented, hopefully. How do you think? Do you think there will be massive units or small units next to the biomass? What do you have in mind? What I have in mind and also what I'm hearing is that I, I think there's a trend going towards decentralizing uh, these mm -hmm. conversion processes in the sense that in my mind, I see it as you have three boxes. Mm -hmm. The first box is taking something solid, making it into a liquid. The second box is removing the contaminants and the third box is hydro treatment yes. to any kind of transport fuel. So if you look at it, we're at the first box here. Yes. So it doesn't make sense to transport 50% water over wide distances. You want to condense the energy so it makes sense to transport it. So I think what, what I, I think we will see is that it will be decentralized units for the first box, for the conversion, the liquid 
Okay. So close to the source of biomass, close to yeah. plastic waste, close to wood. Yeah, residue. if you have a wastewater plant, you have a lot of sewage sludge. Yes. Sewage sludge, you might install one HCL unit there. Yes. Mm-hmm. You might also do it close to a sawmill. Yes. You can do it um other places. Yes. Uh, and and that that also means uh that it's very important that that the liquid is stable yes. for transportation. Exactly. Because you don't want to transport something and then you open the truck and it's solid no, again. No, exactly. So, no, but I'm really curious and uh, anxious about the, the the few demo projects out there. I really hope they succeed. So I think it would be a very good incentive for the for the market to follow that. I know that that there's a, a demo plant being built in in Norway. Yeah. And I'm I really I uh, I really hope that it'll work because we need it. Yes. Yeah, no, and it's quite interesting. We're engineers, so we like technical mm-hmm. things. So we hope it works. Mm-hmm. Going back to the Red 2 Directive, so they have a target of 3.5% of uh, advent feedstock. It's the uh, Annex 9 Part A, which are, most of them are solid. And they want 3.5% of transport fuel produced from this solid feedstock in 2030. Do you really believe that in 10 years, this technology will be out there to produce thousands of barrels per day of transport fuel from solids? As Knowing that, is it re- reliable or is it possible? Is it going to happen? I think someone needs to invest a lot of money very soon if we're going to get there. <laughs> yes. And I think that's that's the key is that very few of these processes are actually commercially available. Mm-mm-mm. We can see a lot of, not a lot, actually really not a lot, but a few demo projects that are ongoing. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the timeline, we're now in 2019. So it'll be at least a few years before it's started up, then yes. you can expect that it might not run full speed. Exactly. Those are first units. So that's why it's a demo. So maybe it's, so in two years, it's 2021. Then it'll take a year or two to sort of, yeah, get get totally up and running and, and have the proof of concept. And then we're in 2023. And, and if people doesn't start building until then. Yes. And then it takes two more years to build a unit. So yeah, at least. I'm curious to see how it will expand. It's uh, very exciting yeah. times. So maybe we'll see a, a very low curve of advanced feedstocks and then in 2029. <laughs> yes, we will <laughs> a catch A lot up. of them will be on stream and, and, we'll see, um, and we'll see some movement there. But I think one of the things that, that I'm also considering is if you're a refinery and you want to buy this feedstock, then you need to... Uh, get used to the thought of buying a, a diverse yes. portfolio of feedstocks from various sources and various vendors. Exactly. And and that's important to keep in mind because it, I think the traders mm-hmm. will uh, will have their work cut out for them Yeah. depending on which unit. And from a technical point of view, you also need flexible units that can handle many types of feedstocks. Yes. Some will have, let's say, sewage sludge, so protein-based, it will be a lot of nitrogen. We talk about 6-7% maybe, yeah. which is massive. Some will have a lot of contaminants. So I guess you will need a lot of flexibility in pretreatment and in catalyst and process. So that's... Uh, yeah. Also because from, from the hydro-treating perspective, it, I, I have still to see the business case where it makes sense to make a 500 barrels per day unit. Yes, the small units are, yes, it's a challenge. Yeah, so so it will be transported. It will be interesting because it's a it's a new uh, feedstock infrastructure 
that needs to be developed. But again, legislation is here and the penalties will be high for refineries not using these feedstocks. Yeah. So the driver, the drivers are there and in place. Mm-hmm. I'm rooting for, for all of the technologies for yes. advanced biofuels. and Technology so, agnostic. Yeah. As Lasser Westfield agnostic, we're technology agnostic and supporting all of that. As long as it's liquid and relatively clean. <laughs> exactly, and stable. Well, that's just about it for this episode of the Fuel Forthought podcast. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can contact us on fuelforthought at topso.com. And if you learned something new, don't forget to like and subscribe. And feel free to share the podcast with your colleagues. From Sylvain and me, it's time to say take care and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.